I'd like to welcome everyone to the AO Journal Club on femoral shaft fractures. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank our moderators, uh, Dr. Carolyn Tuga and Michael Talarico. And uh, I'd also like to thank our, our staff, uh, Dr. Lawrence Bone, Dr. Ross Layton, Dr. Robert Brumbach. Thank you for participating and uh, providing some insight on your research on femoral shaft fractures and uh, kind of where uh, things were and where they're headed. Dr. Bone, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Go through your experience um, dealing with femur fractures and, and how things were dealt with before your paper came out. The paper came out in 89 and we did the study in Dallas uh, between uh, 1985 and 86. Um, but I started uh, getting interested in femur fractures and especially femur fractures in the multiple injured patient um, in the early 70s when I uh, was a general surgical resident in uh, Buffalo, New York, and, and was mentored by uh, John Border. Uh, Dr. Border was um, uh, a general surgeon who, who treated uh, the multiple injured patient, but he also um, managed fractures as the general surgical department um, alternated fracture call with the orthopedic department. Mm -hmm. in, the, um, in, in the 70s, the standard management of a femur fracture was to put them in skeletal traction. Standard time was about seven to 10 days because they felt that if they waited seven to 10 days, they felt that they healed quicker. So everybody with a femur fracture, whether it was isolated or multiple trauma, got skeletal traction. There was a, a reasonably high incidence of what we call fat emboli syndrome. There were some papers that came out of Europe uh, in the mid 70s showing that uh, if you did early stabilization of the femur fracture in a multiply injured patient, you could significantly reduce the fat emboli uh, syndrome complication. Uh, the most famous one was um, from Helsinki, Finland, by a, a doctor named Riska, who reduced the fat emboli uh, complication from 22% to 2.5% by doing early stabilization. But Dr. Border believed in it. And we started doing early stabilization in the mid uh, to late 70s. This was not standard treatment, however. And when I went to Dallas to do an orthopedic residency in 1983, um, Ken Johnson was an attending, did a fellowship with uh, Ted Hansen at Harborview. Ted was the only other person that I know of in the 70s that was treating uh, the multiply injured patient with femur fractures in an early uh, stabilization. Uh, Ted and John hadn't connected yet, but they, but they believed in, in the same principle. The, the study came about when Ken asked me to sit on a panel of a grand rounds in the general surgical department on fat emboli syndrome. During that panel, I told them that in Buffalo, we treated fractures, femur fractures early and significantly reduced the, the pulmonary complications. They thought I was crazy. They absolutely didn't, didn't believe that femur fractures or that orthopedic injuries had anything to do with the complications of the multiply injured patient. General surgical departments were, quote, the captains of the ship, and they dictated to orthopedic departments when they could treat the fractures. But when I sat with Ken after that symposium, um, we decided we needed to do 
a prospective and randomized study that early stabilization made a difference in the multiply injured patient. What we worried about, however, is that because of our bias, uh, that early stabilization was important, um, we could be criticized. So we asked John Weigel, who was a young um, trauma surgeon in the general surgical department, to be part of the study. He didn't believe femur fractures were important to be treated early. Um, and so he could be our, our control. Uh, I, I have to tell you about the randomization because it, it, randomization wasn't, uh, there weren't very many orthopedic papers out there that did prospective randomized studies in 1985. Yeah. And, uh, and I wasn't really sure how to randomize them. So I, um, I, uh, I took uh, pieces of paper and I wrote early and late on each one. I mean, you know, individually, and I wrote a hundred of those out and I put them in a shoebox and shuffled them up and then pulled them out one at a time, put them in an envelope that were, that were labeled one to a hundred and the, and tacked them on the, uh, on, on the bulletin board in the emergency room. And, and that was my randomization. It might not have been scientific by today's standard, but it was definitely randomized. So this is a, so this is kind of a classic we have an idea, we think this works, and now we have to prove it, and that's, that's where this study came from? Right. There was evident, uh, retrospective evidence coming out of Europe that early stabilization was important. And we knew the difference because we, we, we had lived the difference. I can give you an example. When I was a general surgical resident in Buffalo with John Border. Uh, we alternated fracture call every other night with the orthopedic department. We were doing early stabilization. We were plating femurs in, in, in those days as per the AO uh, philosophy. And the orthopedic department was putting them in traction, which was standard care. And in the emergency room, John could document the difference between their patients and our patients. So we knew it, we knew it made a difference, but we had to show the world that it made a difference. And I've seen in frequent, you know, in like review books that this, this article, they, they cite your article saying this changed people's minds, this changed people's mindsets. It did. It did. Um, at the time, it was the best we could do. And it did. It absolutely changed the way orthopedic injuries were managed. Um, I, you know, I've, I've taught all over the world for 30 years. I get a smile on my face when I... Um, remember back giving a course in polytrauma in Switzerland. And one of the faculty was a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon from, from Britain. And he told me that when that paper came out, he used to put it in his back pocket and walk around. And every time a polytrauma patient came to the emergency room, he would show that paper to the general surgeon and the anesthesiologist and say, see, we got to do this. <laughs> it, it, it was the proof, it was the proof people needed, yeah. especially if, uh, if there were doubters in their, in their uh, hospitals, and, and really there were. After this is done, right. how did it change? How did you see it change? Did the orthopedic surgeon now become the decision maker as far as stabilization or, you know, uh, or it, was it, the general surgeon in charge still? The general surgeons are always in charge, but it, it, we became much more of of a collaborative team. Orthopedists now had the evidence 
and developed a protocol for managing the multiply injured patient. Fast majority of polytrauma patients could have their femur fractures treated, stabilized safely. That's what we wanted to stress. One of the important parts of the Buffalo experience was that because we were doing, we were the orthopedic surgeons as well as the general surgeons, we didn't have to fight. We just went in and did what we felt was, was the right way of managing it and then, and, and then showed the results. Based on this, another, something you mentioned is, you know, someone's, someone's too sick initially, but ongoing resuscitation doesn't mean you got to wait another 24 hours until their labs improve and then right. still being aggressive, getting them fixed early. Right. Uh, an excellent question, because that's the way we managed them in, in Buffalo. Uh, you do not want to take, uh, to, to nail that femur in a patient who's not stable, but the idea that they're not stable now, but six hours from now, they can be stable. Um, and you can go ahead and, and nail them time period around 48 to 72 hours that it is not a good time, but if you can get them within the first 24 hours, yeah. um, even if it's not immediate, even if they've, they, if they've been coagulopathic and you've, I, I don't know if I coined the word, but I use it, it's re-resuscitate them. They, the general surgeons take them and they do their surgery and now they need resuscitation again as if they were uh, freshly injured. And right. then you get their parameters uh, uh, controlled and stabilized, and then you can go and take them back. And we've done that routinely. The, the concept of too sick uh, has changed. We can make them better. The old days was, oh, they're too sick. We got to wait and we, and, uh, until they get better, but they never got better. They, we, they were put in skeletal traction. They were in this forced supine position. Uh, ARDS developed, and we never got to them because they died. Too sick was was a bad concept. It's they're they're not ready, but we can make them ready, and uh, uh, and do them at a at an appropriate time. The concept of damage control, which came out in uh, the early '90s out of, out of Hanover, Germany, that's a whole different story. And and I think I had to fight back on that concept because they're idea was, well, they're too sick. We're just going to put them in, in we're just going to uh, put an X fix on them. That was certainly better than uh, skeletal traction. Still forced them to uh, into a forced supine position that, that, we, that we know is, is damaging. But there, but there is a place for damage control. Um, there, there certainly are patients that come in so sick and it's better to, to, to stabilize them with X fixes and, and get them, uh, give them the ability to, to be mobilized than mm. to put them in skeletal attraction. I, I fought against damage control because I was afraid when it came out that it was gonna be an excuse for the orthopedic surgeon to not operate. I gave a John Border talk at the OTA some years ago and I, I uh, I push very hard against that because um, it's it's not your convenience. It's what's best for the patient. In 30 years of managing multiply injured patients, I can only count on 
one hand how many times I had to do damage control. M many of these polytrauma patients in, in those days were not adequately resuscitated. And so they, they never got stable enough to, to be stabilized. In today's world, if we can't get a, um, a patient stable, then they're, then they're really in trouble. But the idea, this idea comes out of damage control. And then, like you said, it gets kind of propagated to the point where we'll just put them in an X-Fix and, and then you can ignore them. It's a continuum in, in finding that window when they're stable. Right. And, and a good point is that all those lab values that we get are only a marker in that moment that they're going to change. And if you're and if you're changing them in, in a positive fashion, then there it will become a time when, okay, they're good. Let's go, let's stabilize them and, and do what is best for the patient at this time. If they can't, if you never get to that point, then uh, damage control is, is the next best option. So one last point, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this, but um, so we have a stable window, the patient, the, the labs have trended toward in the right direction. Uh, can you kind of give your um, approach if they're, mostly, uh, if they're critically injured? Right. The approach is with the least amount of blood loss uh, that you can. So um, you only ream to get a nail in that will stabilize them. It's so much better than the old days where we had to ream to 18 to get a nail to be stable enough. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. But oh. that's what we did. We yeah. ran to 18 in order to get to get enough purchase on the nail in the medullary canal above and below the, the, the fracture site to, con to control rotation. So uh, yeah, it's uh, and, and the, the concept of, of retrograde nails is is um, for the femur it was a great addition to our armamentarium because so many of those distal thirds could so much more quickly be, be, uh, be nailed. Uh, they could be uh, nailed in supine position, which we can even now with the, with the antegrade. But um, yeah, you, you don't want to waste time and you don't want to bleed them any more than, than they've already bled. I, I would like to interject one thing here that, that I don't think got enough um, importance during the study. We, we randomized every femur, not just the polytrauma patients. So that an isolated femur fracture would be put in traction if they were uh, uh, randomized to, to, to late. And I wanna re remind everyone that late for our study was uh, 72 hours. It was not, it, it was not 10 days. Right. Uh, Ken and I both, knew that that 10 day mark, we, we, might, we might have patients die on us. And so we wanted to make it long enough to make a difference, but not long enough to uh, be harmful to the patient. We didn't lose any, any patients. Um, uh, nobody died because they, we, we waited, but a lot of them got uh, significant pulmonary complications because of, of, of the traction. But what I wanted to say is the, the isolated femur fracture, we followed their, their, their blood, blood gases, and I can't remember now how often, but, but uh, frequently. And if you're, we, we saw young, healthy male patients with an isolated femur fracture drop their PO2 sets from, from 90 to 60 routinely just by being in traction in bed. Hmm. And if you were to put that 
on top of a, a pulmonary con contusion or multiple rib fractures, you, it doesn't take too much to extrapolate. Yeah, that's why they get ARDS. That position was, was uh, so detrimental to um, your capacity to oxygenate that um, it, it was a really bad uh, concept. All right, we'll go on to the next video. Can I help? Uh, I'm just finding it here. Okay. Um, so if you could just, you, you mentioned earlier that this was, you view these papers kind of as all together, these studies together. Can you put that in context for me on what this and its its sister or brother papers meant to you or what the impetus was for these? Sure. Um, back in the 90s, um, we had made the shift from just nailing femurs to static locking femurs. There was a concern back originally that um, static locking would be too rigid and the femurs wouldn't heal. Uh, now we'd static lock everything. Um, at least I believe that's the standard of care. Uh, but we went through a series of, 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 of nails with different types of nails that were more dynamic in nature and we saw a shortening and failures. So everything was being statically locked. And the next step was, well, what can you do with the multi-trauma patient that um, has this injury and this uh, fixation in it? In other words, we had people who had injuries of bilateral lower extremities who couldn't get out of bed if you weren't going to let them weight bear at all. So the more that we did static interlocking, and yes, we were using two screws all the time back then, um, but the more that we did static interlocking, we saw that there was a select group of patients who needed to use that leg for mobility early on. Um, and sometimes people have misconstrued this and that the patients that get a femoral nail that's static interlocked are gonna just dance down the hall like they don't have an injury. They don't, they have muscle injury and periosteal pain and the fracture and so forth. It, so they, they don't go crazy, but allowing them to wait for early gets them up and does all, gets all the positive things of mobilization of the patient, um, um, not just cost, but out of the hospital earlier, but I, I believe it's, it's good for the patient anyway. So we wanted to see if static interlocking led to healing uh, or, or did it deter healing uh, and found it, it did not. And then we went ahead to say, well, can we go ahead and push the envelope and let these people wait there? Okay, Perve. So what was being done at the institution? You know, is it what you described in the article or, or was this considered even aggressive or was there pushback among your partners versus the greater orthopedic community in the United States and North America? Um, I think we were, um, actually, in some ways, we used for a while a thing called a Brooker-Wills nail, which had these fins that came out. Um, that, we used that probably too long, and that, was, that did allow some shortening. So we went to the static interlocking and were very happy with the amount of callus and early healing. 
I think in terms of weight bearing, most people did not do that. And I think that there, this was at that time when even femoral nails and interlocking nails were just becoming a, a big community thing where a lot of these people were in trauma centers. And so they were being looked at at people like us at shock trauma, whereas the community, I don't think would have been out there allowing their, their femoral fractures to weight bear. And so in the, in the patient with an isolated femur that maybe didn't make it to the, to the shock trauma in Baltimore, uh, I think that patient was put on crutches and probably put toe touch or foot flattened on weight bearing by the community. I think that the, the takeaway in my estimation was that, oh, just go ahead and let them walk. And I think that that's not reality. Uh, I think that when, when we said you can weight bear these after injury, it doesn't affect healing and, and your loss of fixation is really very, very unusual to, to occur. I think that the, it's, it's, like, it's like reading the headline and not reading the, the article, you know. Um, we, and we didn't, I'm not sure we even understood it. We were looking to, to really change the way the post-operative care was given. And so we kind of let that go on a little bit where people say they could weight bear. But anybody who's treated femoral fracture, people with femoral fractures knows, again, they're not walking down the hall with a cane the next day. They hurt, they have, I mean, they just are not, their muscles simply can't hold them up. It's been torn. I mean, think about what happens every fracture you open up to do an open reduction. You look at that muscle and you go, well, it's obviously been injured. You know, it's not, it's not easy for them. So I think the reality was that these people were able to protective weight bear and maybe help use their legs, some cases just for stand pivot transfers to get out of a chair, sometimes to be able to shuffle across the, the, the room to the bathroom. Um, there was not a, it was not as if these people were riding exercise bikes with full knee range of motion, um, you know, getting their strength back at three weeks out. They just aren't. It's just too big an injury. No, that's good. In terms of the biomechanic biomechanics portion of the study, would you do you think if you redid this today, would you use what materials would you choose to use, and how would you do it differently? If so, oh, that's a great question. Um, we were using back then stainless steel devices, and obviously most of the devices now are titanium based. So we should we should I would certainly do that differently. And the other thing is now that I've had experience with, with, with this over time, um, what I found was, and it's not really in the paper, is that there's an alpha screw. One of the two distal interlocking screws becomes the one that really bears most of the weight. You think that you've got them both through, across the distal femur and they're both through the nail, that they're sharing weight equally just because they kind of look the same? They're not. And one will break before the other every time. You hardly ever see two break at once. It's, I, I can't imagine that I've seen that very often in my life. And that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of femoral fractures that we, that we looked at. So I would probably try to devise this study to see, would I do it with just one screw? Yeah, I would. Um, and would I do it in, with two screw configurations to try to figure out how you get that alpha screw and how you and how you get the non-alpha screw the, the alpha screw is what i mean by that is that that's the one that's really doing the resistance to shortening um uh, that's the one bearing the weight through the nail screw bone construct um and is that was that was one of the things i i think i took away from it that obviously would it, it was a conclusion that was well after the paper was done okay Genetic femurs were those in existence at that point or would you still use a similar substance to pop the implants in now? 
we we had long discussions about that. We we had at the University of Maryland we had a huge um, a cadaver availability, so we could have done done um, um, cadaver femurs. Uh, would have really upped the expense, but it also would have thrown in the variable of of bone density, um, and that would then we would have had to get bone densities on everyone. So this is really a test of the screws. Um, we both have seen screws that windshield wiper back and forth a little bit. Obviously, that's a, a, a screw bone interface failure versus a, a rod screw failure. Um, we were concentrating on the rod screw failure, um, even though I think the other exists and the other is important. And I would do something different to, to try to um, bring that variable into the study. Um, but in the end, even though we tested the entire nail, we really turned out we were testing the two distal inner screws because the proximal screw didn't break. And that's a whole nother, you asked me for things I learned. The proximal screw in all of these nails was a diagonal greater trochanter to lesser trochanter, what we called first generation locking screw. That's hardly ever used today. Nobody ever uses it. And why those transverse screws are more susceptible to breakage than that a single um, a like proximal screw is an interesting phenomenon. When you take a screw and you have a certain core diameter of it, and you load it at 90 degrees, that's obviously different than if you take the same diameter screw, you turn it 45 degrees, the, the core diameter in line with the nail is actually greater because you've turned around something round on, onto it, on, made it an oval. And we did, you don't see proximal interlocking screws break, it, break anywhere near as much as you did the distal ones with this early first generation construct, but now you do. So I, it, it's it's it is a classic thing that you try to do some research and you start asking more questions than you than you've answered. So I, I look at it that way. But uh, we don't use those screws anymore. So, so it's probably um, uh, it's probably a moot point at this time. What? Well, kind of turn your question around a little bit. Sure. If the femur was intact to below the lesser trochanter to within a centimeter or so of the of the true isthmus, which is it depends on in different people, it's a different length there. But we would just use a single proximal interlocking screw. We were perfectly happy with that. Once you get up to the lesser trochanter and the endosteal diameter gets larger, then you have more of a problem with the nail can kind of swing back and forth in that canal like a like a pendulum on a clock and you get varus of the proximal femur and you're dealing with subtroke fractures in, in, in that view. And that's a different animal and that was not tested here. Okay. Um, I know that we're, that if I, it, maybe I should ask you if- So for me, when you had this type of fracture where you weren't gonna get any type of fit, where would you stop your size increasing and what were you trying to get to or what was your thought process in, in practice for the for clinical application of this? Well, that's, that's a great question. First of all, with the devices we had then, the 10 millimeter nails had smaller diameter screws and therefore they were weaker in terms of, of uh, you know, a, a rep repetitive stress. Um, once you got to the 12 millimeter nails in the nails that we, the nails that we tested, the screws were the same diameter as whether you put in a 13 or a 15 millimeter nail. Um, and I think that reaming has become a little bit less of a, in my view, a little bit less of a big deal in terms of fit. I don't think it's an interference fit um, because you, I, you, you over-ream these enough that, because the nails are stiff, you over-ream them enough that 
it doesn't really matter whether you put a 12 or 13 or 14 in, in maybe in terms of nail breakage in the laboratory. And I mean nail breakage, not screw breakage, but nail breakage in the laboratory, that would matter. But in real life, I don't think we see our femoral nails breaking for ismal for, for shaft fractures very often. We see that in subtrochs because of the the, the, the higher you know uh, compressive distractive forces there. But uh, I, I think that it's not a matter of fit. I think that that's why some people only put in 12s. Now, the reason I would go bigger at times on a patient, not in this, not in this study, but on the patient, is because the bigger you are, the better aligned the fracture can be. The nail can't move. If you have one, a, an elderly uh, lady with a massive endosteal canal, having a 15 in there does line it up better than having a 12. It does, but I don't think that mechanically it makes a big difference on whether the fracture is going to remain intact through through fracture healing. I don't think that makes a difference. Okay. Is there anybody you think was left out that should have been brought in or vice versa? A good, a good question. Um, I think that I would have done it differently because I think back then in the 90s, we were just trying to kill science with numbers. We were trying to just collect as many sequential ones as we could and, 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 uh, I think that that's not a very good way to do science. And I don't think your residents should see that as a good way to do science. I think that it would be better to do a study that is, um, uh, has much more emphasis on all the variables, some of them that you just meant, mentioned, and maybe even put a pressure in their shoe so you actually determine how much weight bearing they're doing. I mean, we don't even know that. We don't know that. And so I think that the, it could have been done much better. I think I look back on some of the studies we did and basically because we were a high volume trauma center, we could just rack up numbers. Um, it's like putting cars in a parking lot and trying to sell them. You know, you, the more you got, the more people come in and look at them. Well, you know, that's not really the best way to do science. You need a method that will try to differentiate between different variables. And we weren't really trying the to top two thoughts about when someone asks you about this or about this topic. Um, I think we, I'm, I'm happy that I thought we kind of advanced treatment a little bit. And I look back at that kind of, kind of like some, we did something, something pretty good there. I don't think we necessarily proved it as well scientifically as we did. And I think that, uh, you then go on to the next question and that I, I just look at it. I'm not one who looks back and goes, um, you know, kind of in a, in a almost, a, a sentimental way, you know, no. We, we, we pushed it to that and heck, we weren't even doing retrograde femoral nails back then. You know, we had lots of, lots of things to open, um, lots of, of questions to answer. And I would just say, this is what we found. I think clinically it's been proven to be true. And let's move on to the next question. All right, on to the last <clears throat> interview. unreamed intramedullary nailing of the femur, comparison of the rate of ARDS in multiply injured patients. With me, I have Dr. Ross Layton, one of the senior authors on the paper. Hi, Dr. Layton. Hello. Welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Appreciate um, being here. So I will quickly just summarize for the listeners that this was a randomized control trial and roughly 300 patients with injury severity scores of greater than 18 were recruited and assigned to receive either a reamed or an unreamed intramedullary femoral nail within 24 hours of admission. Right. The primary outcome was basically the development or not of ARDS. And the key finding was really that there was no difference between the two groups. Yeah. 
So Dr. Lane, these results were in contrast to some other studies that were previously published around that time or prior to it. Can you please summarize for us what those studies were and the impetus for this randomized control trial? Yeah, well, to put it in perspective, we first started uh, a trial to look at ream versus unream nailing. So that was the first study we did uh, with the cost group, and that had about 200 patients in it, 230 patients. And uh, what we showed very definitively has been re repeated over and over is that, you know, minimally ream nails are way better than ream nails as far as than unream nails as far as the complications are concerned. So you can make a case for either one, but if you look at a bunch of uh, patients and look at them, then the, the complication rate of the smaller unream nails is greater. So from that group, we, we uh, decided that we'd see if we could make any suggestions about ARDS and it was too small a group. So we increased the group size to 300 and some, as you pointed out. Now at that time, there's a lot of uh, controversy coming mostly out of Germany uh, with Pape's paper and things saying that if you had an associated lung injury or, or multiple traumatized patient that, that damage control surgery was better. You know, that was kind of thing or, or unream nails were better than ream nails, you know. So anything that, that didn't affect the the uh, intermediary canal as much would be better for the patient. And and our, our literature in the in North America just didn't match that. So we couldn't we couldn't uh, match that. So we decided that we would try to see whether in this group we had of 200, if we increased to three or 400 patients, would it show a difference in the ARDS groups? That's, that was the impetus for the paper. I think the, the real controversy seems to be Europe to North America. And I think, I think that's been looked at many, many times. And it's not to say Europe is wrong. I think, I think a lot comes down to transfer and delay and, and things of when they get people. Like I think that our, ours are obtained fairly quickly. And I think sometimes theirs are Delay just getting to the centers that they're at. So, so it's uh, it, it really comes down to choices, you know. So, do you think that was one of the main differences between the North American and the German or the Pepe article versus the North American articles? Why was there such a higher ARDS rate? Yeah, uh, I don't. You know, we looked at that multi different ways, and and we couldn't really show why. I, I, I think they really focused on damage control and they thought that was a big thing. And I think we re, it really did bring it to the forefront and that was their goal. And I think the problem is it was taken like everything uh, and, and applied to all the patients that we had to damage control on everybody, which was, we were trying to say, don't do that, right? right. So I think there was a little bit of pushback from North America to say, we don't want to do external fixers on everybody. So which ones do we have to do it on? So we kind of fine-tuned it a bit. I think when it all, when the dust all cleared, both groups agree that that's probably right. So I, I think the groups really have settled into a pretty similar pattern when you talk to them now. They're not doing as much damage control and we're not doing as much you know, immediate eye nail. So I think we're both thinking a little bit more about the other guy's uh, study and, uh, and we're, we've, we've sort, of, sort of made a nice compromise, I think that's helped our patients. Correct. And on that note, any other feedback or reviews or critiques that this paper received? At the time of publication or since? No, what, you know, this one didn't. Well, this one didn't receive as much as what I say. Pape stole the show on that one. He got most of the reviews on that. But uh, the I think our paper, the initial paper, got a lot of feedback on because people really liked unrhymed nails, and we were saying they weren't that good. And it, it was it was repeated over and over, and it was showing that unrhymed nails are, were just not as good as the ream nails. So so that really was a change in practice that people doing them now don't really get because they, they just always done ream nails, not a big deal. So yeah. it just seems, so I think that was the change in practice. The ARDS picture was really hard to show because you needed so many patients to indicate it. So I don't think we had a real show-stopping paper in that one, but uh, I think we had enough to say that 
that that we could do more papers to to prove that you didn't have to do damage control all the time. So so that was good. Open the door for other studies. Yeah. And how was it executed as you know part of the COTS group? Yeah, well, in the COTS group, we come up with a plan, as you know, and, and then we uh, prepare to, for the group. There's 16 academic centers in the group plus the community centers. And uh, then we decide on a protocol and then reach out to people to see who want to be involved. And normally when you finish up, although eight or 10 sites start out, usually about six sites finish it and, and carry out the randomized trial. But it's a randomized, so you, you pick it out and it's completely randomized when you enter the uh, inclusion criteria, then you go to one group or the other, and, and that's carried out until we feel that we've reached the end of the study, either by nature of we've completed what we think we would find, or it gets to a point where you, if you went any further, you'd have to recruit so many patients, it would be ridiculous to try and keep on going, so. And I mentioned one of the key findings, um, but can you tell us in your own words, what was the main takeaway from this study? Yeah, so our, our hypothesis was that, you know, if we, we didn't do as much damage to the inventory canal, that the, re, the unreamed nail, although it was had a higher complication rate in the majority of patients, we thought maybe that the unreamed nail might be more May, may, may be safer in that that group that developed ARDS, and as it turned out, it wasn't. So minimally reamed nails were just as safe as unreamed nails, and they had the, the positive value of having less complications as, as they went out. So you could get a bigger screw size, and then mostly you could go from a four millimeter screw to a five millimeter locking screw, and that made a big difference as far as breakages was concerned. So our hypothesis did not prove correct in our group, and then when we looked at it, we, we thought you'd have to get about 30,000 patients into it to, to actually show a difference. So our percentage, and I think Bob O'Toole sold the same thing, is only about a 2% or 1% ARDS rate. So when you have only have a 2% difference in your groups, there's gotta be an astronomical number of patients to show a big difference. So no one's really attempted that study. And I think that's appropriate given right. the numbers. Yeah. yeah. And then do you think uh, any improvements or modifications you would have made to the study originally or make to any spin-off studies that might follow from it and yeah. do you think further study is required on this question uh i think it's it's going to take would take a lot of patience to do this as we mentioned in our group we looked at the percentages and bob o'toole has the same numbers you know two percent or one and a half percent with that size of difference you're really looking at at thousands of patients to show a big difference so i think i'm not sure it's worth the uh, the cost of the study to to determine when when the instance is so low and seems to be both the same I think that you're probably not worthwhile to for ARDS. I think we want to do something in nails to see a, what's a better nail. That would be a good study to do because we we always shown is that reamed is better than unreamed. We haven't shown what what style reaming, what what kind of nail, you know, a tan fan versus a you know a, a entry which entry points the best, you know whether you put one screw, two screws, three, there's a lot of things there that I think I'd look at for sure. But I don't think ARDS would be a big a big look from my standpoint. I think they're really sick, they've got a damage control. I think if they're otherwise well and you get them within 24 hours, the majority can be treated with a, 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 a minimally ream nail. Yeah. And the one thing we did at around the same time, we looked at you know mechanically looking at pressures and and one of these things that, that came up in our pressure readouts was that you know the first thing that goes down the canal gives you the highest pressure so if you put an unreamed nail down you actually get the same pressures uh in a patient's femur as you do putting a ream nail down so the first nail that goes down there whether you put a nine millimeter reamer or an eight millimeter reamer it throws up the highest pressures 
So you're really not saving anything. If you put a, a, an unreamed nail down, you actually have the same pressures as a ream nail and it sustains itself a bit longer. So the curve kind of looks a little less uh, peaked. It sort of goes up and, and it goes high and goes long. Goes through, but, the, but the peak pressures are the same. So that was kind of surprising, but made sense then. If you right. com combine that with what you saw clinically, no difference in the ARDS rate. So makes sense. One of the things I noticed was the unreamed group got a solid nail and the reamed group got a cannulated nail. Do you think a ream, a cannulated nail versus a solid nail changes the pressure? Because no, the highest pressure when you do a reamed nail is with the first pass reamer. It doesn't matter whether it's an eight or a nine or a 10, whatever you pass the first reamer with down the canal, that's your highest peak pressure. So in terms of a critique of the paper, we kind of address the power analysis sure. at this point. Um, in terms of isolating chest injury patients, I know when I look at Pepe's study, he was looking specifically at those severely chest injured. I didn't see that in this study specifically rather than, you know, no. just injuries. It was just randomized. And we thought, we, we, we felt that we would, uh, that we would capture the same amount or relative to the same amount of both groups, which we seem to do that. But uh, we didn't actually say, you know, further secondary randomize and do, okay, chest injured patient, you know, now randomize those. We didn't do that. Now, as it turned out, they seem to be about the same in both groups anyway, but but they, uh, we didn't do that on purpose. So that would be a critique for sure. If you said, okay, we're going to double randomize, put them in, you know, ream versus unream, and then say, okay, if they have chest injury, we're going to randomize them again to make sure those are equal in both groups. That'd be a good critique. Now, Bob O'Toole did that when he looked at resuscitation, you know, with those things. He looked at really chest injuries and, and looked at as long as you resuscitate the patient well, so the lactate was good, the ventilation parameters were good, and the patient was relatively stable, then there was no difference between their outcome and the literature in Germany, So, which is what the, the big comparison was as we were talking about. So um, in summary, your main take home from this study in 2021. So I think those are the take home messages. Look at damage control as a separate event. Look at the, uh, the initial event should be millimeter ream nails, and then uh, go to the go to the other things uh, when you get delayed or the patient gets delayed in transfer. Perfect. Well, I never shared my screen, but <laughs> you can share it now if you want. I'll share it now. Yeah. Just so everyone can see this is the study we're referring to. And thank you, Dr. Layton, for oh, taking the time yeah. to share your insights and thoughts on the paper. My pleasure. Nice to see you. All right. <clears throat> Do we have any questions uh, from the question and answer section? Uh, we do. Uh, Carolyn, go ahead if you want to. Sure. Um, so uh, one of the questions for the faculty was, uh, is there any contraindication for you in nailing patients between the fourth and 10th day after the fracture event if they have a normal pH and a normal lactate? Dr. Brumbeck or Dr. Bone, any thoughts on hi. that? Hi, Bobby Brumbeck here. Um, absolutely not. When the patient's ready to be nailed, I nail them. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I don't use a calendar to decide best day or worst day. I know that there's been all those uh, uh, thoughts and things in the literature, but uh, if they're ready, to, um, if they're stable. Now, if they're getting worse in a pulmonary way, then Larry and I are going to have probably a discussion that uh, brings in his his expertise, but uh, I think in general, uh, when the patient's ready to be nailed and stable is when I fix them. I, I agree with that. 
Can you hear me? Is my mic on? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think I think the 48 to 72 hours, as I mentioned, is bad. Um, but after that period, once their their parameters are fine, go ahead. Now a little bit. Uh, Bobby cautioned about uh, if their pulmonary function is deteriorating. I I'm more aggressive in that patient because I know they're already going downhill. I want to get them stabilized, the femur stabilized, so I can mobilize them. If I don't, uh, the downhill spiral is, is is often catastrophic. So I've taken patients that are deteriorating pulmonary-wise, but otherwise uh, uh, stable, uh, and fixed them, and then got them up. And that that brings on the the other questions inherent in the question that was asked. What was done the first three days? Well, that's Just, right. No one's sitting around in traction now. Yeah, so why weren't they done earlier? But that may have been a, a, a factor that they, the patient wasn't able to be stabilized to, to do acutely. And, uh, and, and so they ended up having to wait. Right. And would you consider if someone had to wait for three days and was getting worse, would you consider uh, an X fix at that point versus a nail? You know, um, that's, 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 I thought my thinking was, is that's where kind of people would be headed. And I don't think that would be wrong. I but agree. I they need to be stabilized. I agree. That isn't wrong. And, and that's the next best option. And, um, you know, I would have to have a, a, a specific on that one, whether I would go ahead and, and X fix versus uh, definitive fixation. I just would have to see what the, what the numbers were. We agree. Yes, we agree. So can you discuss your protocol, someone who's kind of at risk or borderline patient? Uh, what, like what's your protocol or what's your approach as far as nailing? My approach is if they're borderline and I can get them out of being borderline to a stable condition, I nail them. And if I can't, I X fix them. I mean, it, it's, it, I, uh, my last JBJ article was a, um, uh, current concepts and we and we diagram that all out. Uh, Pete and I did, um, you know, the European and the North American um, got together and said, okay, what uh, can we do and what shouldn't we do? And uh, and we came down to, okay, if they're borderline and we can and we can get them out of that situation so they're stable enough to fix, we fix them. And if they're not, then damage control and put an X fix on and see how you do. Can we talk about specific criteria that says someone's been resuscitated or Dr. Bone re-resuscitated that uh, tells you they're in the safe window just for the audience? I missed the question. Say it again. So can you can we just review or a cr criteria from the faculty as far as someone who's been resuscitated or re-resuscitated that uh, tells you that they're ready for uh, acute stabilization? That we don't do is because they're coagulophobic and often hypotensive because of the blood loss. And we want to, we can take that patient and give them blood and warm them up and, and uh, follow their blood gases. And if they all improve over the next six hours, 
baseline. This is usually the patient time they get done, they come from cardiopathic and hypothermic. Uh, those patients over the next four six hours can, if they can be stabilized, to a condition that we feel is um, uh, stable enough to, to take them to surgery and put an on them versus, um, in fact, I've put X fixes on at the bedside in those patients uh, in, in the ICU uh, versus a definitive nail. Dr. Brumbach, what are your what were your criteria? What are your criteria? Well, I'm, um, I think were is the best uh, 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 question because uh, I just retired in April, so I've got to tell your audience that have a nice life. Um, but uh, I think their lactate has to be in the in the range. I think that we have questions about if they have increased ICP and intracranial pressures. That's a that's a um, sometimes the neurosurgeon says no, no, no. Uh, Larry mentioned the, the coagulopathic issues and the blood replacement issues. I, I actually like to see their kidneys working. Um, we see people who come in um, who, who get into an acute renal failure episode and I'd like to see their, their, their uh, kidneys uh, recovering. And if they can't do it, if, if they're not checking all those boxes, then I think Larry's right. You've got to put an X-fix on them and stabilize it, mobilize them. They're gonna get worse if you don't. And hopefully um, that all happens in a relatively short time. All those decisions happen in a short time, but more importantly, the resuscitation happens in a short time and you get them back. So the number of patients uh, that need the X-fix is I think relatively few, but I do think that the so-called damage control X-fix of the femur fracture has become more of a, um, uh, a situation where we have people, not everybody comes to a trauma center where people are, have, have fixed hundreds of femurs in their, in their life. Um, there are people on call at community hospitals. And I think that in, in some situations, call has become a part where you're a sports medicine doc who doesn't really want to do a nail, but he can put on an X fix to, to kind of prolong the, or get, get you to the game when you're not on call every night. I think that's also something that's happened under the heading of this damage control orthopedics. And I don't know how we're gonna, that may have helped a lot of patients by being stabilized early, uh, but they do need a second operation. I realize that's not where you were headed, but you gotta get the resuscitation done. Um, there's a question from the audience about anticoagulation. So for patients that come in anticoagulated, and I think specifically oral anticoagulants, do you allow that to delay your fixation? And if so, do you wait the 48 hours? I think Larry may have some connection problems. Um, I think the biggest, uh, the 48 hours is the interesting part of your question because now we have all this oral anticoagulation that we of course have no idea how anticoagulated you are. And in fact, we don't really have a very good idea how long you're anticoagulated even though you might be able to tell them when you took your last pill. So I believe that the evidence is, is beginning to trickle out that it's, it's pretty safe to operate under, under some of these conditions if you're doing a relatively bloodless surgery. Would it push me to do an external fixator uh, if someone were fully anticoagulated? It probably would. Um, 
but then you're going to have to go through the issue of backing off on their oral anticoagulants, um, possibly a, a, a venocameral filter, and then coming back when their coagulation is in fact much better. And the confusion of what's happened with all of our um, uh, new anticoagulants that we can't even measure them uh, bring, makes your question very germane. Uh, so I think you'll find people worried about that, but I don't think I've ever nailed anybody's femur that's, that's bled out and had massive blood loss from their thigh and, and so forth. I've seen pretty large thighs after injury and after nailing, but I can't say that I think that I've hurt anybody in terms of life expectancy. So um, a good question that I'm not sure has a scientific answer yet. So the question was about uh, nailing a femur and anticoagulation, namely oral anticoagulation. Uh, what's your take? On a patient who's on oral anticoagulation and then comes in with a femur fracture, is, is that it or after the nailing? Would you nail them while they're on anticoagula oral anticoagulation? I try to reverse them first. If, if, that's, if, I have the, if I have the luxury of that, I'll reverse them first. If, if, if not, um, I'll nail them. Again, we have to remember the difference between the 70s and 80s and the present nailing that we're doing is, is as Ross said, we're, it's, it's a minimal reaming and a, and a 12 nail. We're not trying to, um, to put an 18 in anymore. We don't need to. <laughs> on, that, on that discussion point of minimal reaming, uh, two audience members are asking, what does minimally reaming mean to you? Dr. Layden alluded to it. What reaming styles would you describe and what does minimal versus non-minimal reaming mean to both of you, Dr. Bone and Dr. Brumbach? Um, I think my, what I would tell the residents is something that Bob Winquist, who if you're looking into femur fractures in the literature, you got to run across his name and his work. Um, Bob Winquist used to, when this issue came up about reaming and how big a nail you put in and is it non-reamed or not, Bob Winquist, who was always a guy who would cut to the chase, referred to the, to the reamer as the rotating sound. And what he would do would pass a small reamer down. And when he got his first bit of chatter, he would say, I don't need to go any bigger. And he would just put a nail in, if, especially if they were sick. So our, our parameters are such, we want to get a nail in that has the larger screws in. And so whether, you, whether the person has a relatively small canal and you, you hear reaming at 10, you're still gonna put a 10 nail in it. So you gotta ream it to a 11 and a half at least. Um, you have a size in your head about the minimal size nail that you wanna put in. And there's a, size, there's a reaming diameter that goes with that. So you don't ream above what you need to ream in my view. I don't ream up the way we used to to try to get interference fit of the nail. That it just isn't done anymore. We're just trying to get the device down them. And there are people in the world who only put in 12 nails in people of normal size. They'll go smaller if they have someone with a very tiny endosteal canal. But I, I look at this, the reamer is something that tells you how big a nail you should put in, or more importantly, how much you have to ream until you can get the smallest nail that you'll be happy putting in. Um, that's the way I look at it. Larry? I totally agree. All right, <clears throat> maybe one final topic, uh, but it's a, a fairly controversial one is bilateral femurs. What's your approach on bilateral femurs? Larry, go ahead. It is, 
again, it's uh, are they stable and can they be done? And if you have a bilateral femur is a benchmark for a really high energy trauma and they are very likely to have multiple, multiple injuries. And if they're stable and you take them just enough to go to surgery and you nail the first one and they become unstable, you put a fixer around the second. And if they stay stable, you you nail the second. That's our approach. Do you do them integrated? Um, it depends on the location, but if I can do them retrograde, I'd prefer to do them retrograde. Dr. Brumbach? Um, I would say I'm, I'm with Larry on this. To a point, I have a couple of issues here. Um, I I I do retrograde nailing, very very did a lot of it, but I tend to like anti-grade nailing better in terms of maintaining length of the femur. So, assuming the patient's stable enough to go to the operating room, and if they're if they're really kind of stable but iffy, I'll do them both retrograde. On the other hand. I take the simplest femur first. Don't do the most complicated one first. One that, one, one that has a fracture pattern that shows you the length and alignment of the, of the femur when you're lining it up under image and so forth. That femur, do the easiest one first because it takes a little less time and it tells you exactly the length and diameter of the nail that you're gonna need for the other side, for the more difficult side. So. If you've got a simple transverse fracture on one side and a comminuted one on the other, it makes all the decisions easier on the second femur if you do the easy one first, whether it's retrograde or integrate. Um, I know that, an that integrate would require a breakdown of the entire operative field and a turning of the patient because I do my integrates free on a fracture table, uh, free on a radiolucent table, I mean, um, so that there's more time involved. But I personally believe a comminuted femur fracture, and this has not been borne out in the literature, it's my opinion. I wanna make sure everybody understands that. My opinion is I'm more accurate in length and rotation with an integrate nailing of a comminuted, a type four comminution, um, segmental comminuted femur fracture. I'm more accurate integrate in terms of length and rotation than I am retrograde. That's my opinion. Any additional comments or any final thoughts? We're getting up to eight o'clock here. Uh, Dr. Brumbach, uh, I had a question on how did you view your relationship with your general surgery colleagues from your start time at uh, shock trauma to when you worked all the way through there you know, before the end of your career? What was the evolution of the relationship like? Because Dr. Bone alluded to his in his writing of his paper and, and ongoing. And I just wonder if you could comment on that relationship or dynamic. Um. Michael, it was very positive. Um, I felt like I was part of a team. I did not feel like I was uh, needing to be a puffy chested adversary to my general surgery colleagues. Uh, I did not meet a lot of resistance in terms of what Larry discussed with, in his video for his paper um, about it's time to move along. 
They accepted the issue of us doing things quickly and we did them in the middle of the night. I mean, we nailed the femurs as they came in. I can't tell you how many times I left my house at two o'clock in the morning to nail a femur back then. And now it's totally different. Now it's, we're nailing them early, but we're not nailing them that early. You know, we're not nailing them in the single digit AM hours. We're at maybe nine, 10, 11, you know, but we're not doing it at three, four and five. Um, I think that I had in general, very good support uh, from the institution and, the, and, 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 and my general surgery colleagues. And I think we were very sheltered from the pressures of being in a community hospital and having other people have other jobs and, and other practices. This was our only thing that we did. And I think that's probably what made it work. We were all, we're all pulling the wagon in the same direction and it was very important for that to be true. Whereas I don't know that that's true now that there's so many people taking trauma call and trauma patients being delivered to so many different hospitals. Um, that's the difference that occurred is that, um, is that community hospitals are, have trauma surgeons and they are doing trauma. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's different. Um, so I know I was, I'm thrilled to have known my orthopedic colleagues academically like Ross and Larry, who people I've, I know and could have called today and, you know, and ask a question to them and they would have answered the phone uh, just like I would have for them. But my general surgery colleagues were the same way. So I had, I had good experiences with them. And then I just had a kind of a final question. Um, I guess, you know, at this point, you know, where do we go from here? Um, you know, what in your opinion are relevant study questions going forward? Um, I have, I have one question and that I, I know some of my colleagues are only using second generation or, or cephalomedullary nailings for mid-shaft femur fractures and the piriformis fossa has kind of gotten out of, out of vogue. Um, I wonder whether or not um, those nailings are the same. And my concerns may be that there may be a little bit more malalignment with the cephalomedullary nail than a piriformis nail but does it matter in the function of the patients? And so the, the, the study that needs to be looked at is a, a randomized study of piriformis nailing of shafts versus cephalomedullary nailing of shafts. And then, or shall I say greater trochanteric starting portal, not necessarily cephalomedullary, but, and then look at the alignment, you measure it, and then see if it makes any difference in their final function. I think we're getting down to patient function questions at this point. From the uh, polytrauma standpoint, um, and I don't know if we're if we have the wherewithal to study this yet, but there may be a genetic uh, component to certain patients that no matter what you do to them, they're gonna they're gonna go downhill. And um, we've seen every now and then you do the right thing and a patient still dies, and why? And so but there may be something in their ge genetic makeup. And if we can find that, then perhaps we can determine uh, how best to treat them in the future. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Brumbach and Dr. Bone for um, hanging with us tonight. So any last take home messages? <laughs> nail them. <laughs> <laughs> Resuscitate them. Resuscitate and nail. We didn't talk enough about the resuscitation early and well 
that's that makes the difference. And I think that was the difference between North America and Europe. Early aggressive resuscitation and early aggressive resuscitation. Okay. All right. So upcoming upcoming journal clubs are next month. Uh, Liz Frank in December, damage control versus early total care. And then uh, January is uh, non-unions. And I'd like to thank Dr. Brumbach and Dr. Bone again for joining us and uh, providing their insight. Thank you very much.